You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, we are working our way through the book of Romans. We find ourselves in Romans chapter 11. We're going to pick up in verse 2. Let's stand together as we read and honor the reading of Scripture together. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does God reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed a knee to Baal. So, to at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the sufficiency of Scripture that that your word is enough. There is tremendous power in your word. That your spirit uses it to transform lives, to change people. Lord, we might see We pray that we might see the the glorious truths of the gospel today. That Jesus Christ might be exalted in this place. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps the most uh, helpful thing to do at this point is to to answer the question in verse 2 in a little bit more detail. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? So we, we need to go back there and, and look at that, that scene in 1 Kings chapter 19 and, and proceeding. Paul is taking for granted that we all understand what he's referring to when he brings up Elijah the prophet here. So let's just go back to, to 1 Kings 19. If, if you would, just take your, your Bible and, and flip back there for a few minutes. In fact, even go a couple pages further to, to chapter 16, and we see that the king of Israel at that time is a king by the name of Ahab, and he was a, a wicked king, and his wife was a, a piece of work. Silas, sit down. Her name was Jezebel. Jezebel. In 1 Kings 16.30, we read that Ahab did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, more so than all who came before him. And we are told that he and his wife Jezebel went and served the Baals. They made an Asherah, which is a, a Canaanite goddess of fertility, 
the mother of Baal. And we are told that when Ahab put this up, it provoked God's anger even more so than the kings before him. And the question is, is why did it provoke God's anger? Well, the worship of the Ashereth and Baal included both unbridled sexual activity and also child sacrifice. Now, remember, this is in Israel. And this kind of worship didn't make it into Judah until later, but it did make it into Judah, the southern kingdom, and that is because of relatives of Ahab and Jezebel. In other words, their legacy, the legacy of Ahab and Jezebel, had a tremendous impact on an entire other nation. Not only was Israel taken into captivity to Assyria for their actions, but later, still later, but the southern kingdom then was taken into captivity to Babylon. For they abandoned the worship of God and served the Baals as well. Well, I'm making comments here. We can't miss the connection between the, the permissive sexual activity that was the, the, that was the point of the Asheroth and that the other aspects of Baal worship included child sacrifice. In, in other words, the worship and the sexual activity was more important than their children. Some might say, did they, did they really sacrifice their children? I mean, did they really do that? Well, look at Jeremiah 19.5. They have built the, the high places to Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I, God, did not command or decree, nor did it even come into my mind. It's important to understand that this is how the nations around Israel worship their gods, and it would be foolish to think that this kind of paganism wouldn't infiltrate into the worship of the one true God. This is why we read in Deuteronomy chapter 12, which is the law repeated, that's what Deuteronomy means, Deuteronomy 12.31, that you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. God goes into great detail on how he is to be worshipped. You know this if you've read the book of Leviticus. This is why. God tells us how he ought to be worshipped. We do not get to decide those things. I hope you're making the connection here between what was going on then and what's going on in our modern world that killing of children isn't a new practice. In in the days of ancient Israel, they did it in the name of their worship. We do it in the name of convenience. But it's still about worship. It's all about worship, whether one has a a name for that God or not. But make no mistake, the the killing of, of children is detestable, whether they're killed in the womb or just weeks after they're born or whether they're in the process of being born. The, the act is horrible. Children's sacrifice is an abomination. And many who are advocates of abortion would even agree to that statement. But how different is it, really? It isn't 
killing a child to appease some deity. It's to appease one's own soul and release them from the current situations they're in. Make no mistake, it's still to appease a God. The God is just you. I bring all of this up to, to highlight how evil King Ahab was. He was like the, the leader who signs the partial birth abortion law into place and then everyone cheers. Now, since these prophets are being killed, Obadiah takes a hundred of them, hides them in caves so that Jezebel wouldn't kill them. These were not good days for the prophets of the one true God. So Elijah comes back and confronts Ahab finally. And when Ahab sees Elijah, he calls him, you are the troubler of Israel. You brought this drought on us. But Elijah turns around and says, this is not my fault. This is yours. Because you turn from the commands of God, you serve the Baals. And then he tells all of Israel to gather at Mount Carmel, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of the Ashereth. You know the story. Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal to a contest in which fire would consume the altar. Of course, Elijah's sacrifice was consumed, along with the wood, stones, the soil, the water, the moat, around everything. And Elijah then had the prophets of the Baal killed. One of the interesting things is that after that contest, when everyone knew who the one true God is, Elijah tells Ahab, now it will rain. And it did. What do you think Ahab's response should have been? Perhaps repent and worship the one true God like so many did that day? In chapter 19, we're told that he told Jezebel, Ahab told Jezebel, he emphasized in his telling that Elijah had the prophets of Baal killed. So Jezebel decided that she would put the word out that then Elijah should be killed. And Elijah was afraid, and he fled. Be fair to Elijah, I'm sure he was exhausted from the events of the day. But still he lost his confidence in God, he fled on a 40-day journey into the remote wilderness of Mount Horeb. Then we see what is one of the most pitiful complaints in all of the Bible. Look at verse 10 there in chapter 19. Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your, your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left to seek, and they seek my life to take it away. I mean, we look at this from the outside and notice that the Israelites had just responded to this victory at Mount Carmel by killing all of these prophets of Baal. But God hears Elijah's complaint and he responds by encouraging him. He places him on a mountain, a great wind, an earthquake, fire passed by, but God was not with him. He was in the gentle whisper. God then tells Elijah after Elijah complains more to anoint two new kings. 
Hazel, the king of Amram, and Jehu, the king um, of Israel. And then he was to anoint Elisha to be his successor. So these three would be a strong team to help him. Remember, his complaint was he was the only one left. Now God is saying he's going to raise up three people here that is going to be your, it's going to be your help, your encouragement. I'm sure that was great comfort, but not only that God says that in verse 18, but he says in verse 18 that he has 7,000 in Israel that have not bowed their knee to Baal. That's, that's remarkable. I bring this story up as we start looking at the text in Romans because this is the story that Paul is referring to in these verses. In, in the verses that we're looking at in Romans 11 from 1 Kings uh, we, we see quotes from 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10, verse 14, and verse 18. We need to understand the context of 1 Kings to really understand why Paul is quoting this certain portion. But we also need to understand Paul's flow here in Romans 11. If you remember, Paul is making the case in Romans 9 through 11 that God's word concerning the nation of Israel has not failed. He's using seven arguments along the way throughout these chapters. Last week, we looked at the fourth of these, chapter 11, verse 1, and that was that God's word has not failed. He's not rejected Israel because some Jews believed and has been, have been saved, and Paul himself was an example of that. Now in verses 2 through 10, Paul is going to make the case that it has always been that way, that even in the worst of times, God saves a remnant. Now we must add, that what is new in Paul's argument is the idea of remnant here. The word refers to a, a small surviving part of something, an, an object, a, a custom, or a, a people. A piece of fabric left over after most of it has been sold is called a, a remnant. The old, in the Old Testament, the word refers in most cases to a small number of Jews that survived invasions or destructions or captivities that were inflicted on them by the Assyrians or the Babylonians. The word occurs 62 times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it occurs three times. And one of those occurrences we've already seen in chapter 9. Now, every time the word is used in the New Testament, it's actually quoting a text from the Old Testament. So in Acts chapter 15, 16, and 17, that's quoting from Amos 9, 11, and 12. And in those verses, the word remnant is referring to the Jews that survived deportation by the Babylonians, who in those days of the apostles in Acts were given renewed opportunity to seek the Lord and thus become the people of God. In Romans 9, 27, there's a quote from Isaiah 10, 22, and 23, a text that we've already looked at. Now we need to ask a, a couple questions, knowing that this passage, one, has 1 Kings 19 in mind, and second, adds the idea of remnant into Paul's argument. The first question here has to do with... What verses 2 through 5 really add to verse 1? Why are, why are they seen as two different arguments? Why can't they be, be lumped together? Right? Paul didn't, 
Or didn't Paul already prove God's faithfulness to Israel by showing that even if no other Jews were saved, that he had been saved, therefore no one could say that God totally abandoned Israel? I think these verses add at least two things. First, they show that although God could have been faithful to his promise by only saving one Israelite, his grace extended much more, much more than that. There were 7,000 in Elijah's time. And we would assume that in Paul's day that it wasn't any different, that God was still saving people. It might have seemed to Elijah that God had abandoned Israel and that all, that all had rejected God, but it just wasn't true. It wasn't true in Elijah's time, and it wasn't true in Paul's time as well. Paul wasn't the only one. There were 7,000. Or Elijah wasn't the only one. We see much of the same things in the book of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people come to faith. And then we read that the Lord kept adding to that number. The fact is, God is doing that. Just because we don't see it does not mean it isn't happening. Second, we need to ask who Paul is referring to when he speaks in verse 2 of his people whom he foreknew. There's a couple different options here, and this is a little bit technical, but commentators are really divided right down the center on this. The first option is that Paul is making a reference to the nation as a whole. So Israel as a nation was foreknown by God, which is true. God chose that nation. He created it. He blessed that nation for the purpose of being a blessing to others. That's, that's an option. The second option is that Paul is referring to, to spiritual Israel. So the elect people of God, or even more specifically, the elect within the physical nation of Israel. And I'm tempted to side here with option number two and follow like John Calvin, Charles Hodge, and others and take the second interpretation. But I think there's good reason to say that, that Paul is making reference to the entire nation here. Because that fits better with the immediate context in verse one. That his people are the, the physical nation. And, and that the answer is that no, God has not rejected them because he saved one. Now, the, the second verse, Paul is saying the same thing in a different way and elaborating on his answer. Has God rejected his people? No, he saved Paul. Is God rejecting his people who he foreknew? No, he saved more than you think he has. Kind of the point. We've already seen this in, in chapter 10, the last verse there. God is waiting continuously and compassionately for the nation to come to him, but they're rebellious. But, but even in their rebellion, God saves some of them. That's verse 11, or that's chapter 11, verse 1. God saved Paul and therefore has not totally rejected his people. Now in verses 2 through 5, we are seeing that God saves a lot more than that. And that is the point that Paul is drawing our attention to 1 Kings 19 for. And God is telling Elijah that he is not alone, but there are 7,000 that haven't bowed to Baal. 
In other words, there's a lot more. There are many more than the one objecting might think. Seems like I'm all alone here. There's many more. We also must look at what's happening here from the perspective of God's timing. When we think of the nation as not being rejected by God, we also must realize that God's timing is not the same as our own. We look around now, or the people in Paul's days looked around at the nation and they saw them rejecting the Messiah. But as time goes on, God is continually working. God is continually saving people. Something that when God is saving the Gentiles, it's continuously arousing the the jealousy and frustration among the Jews, drawing them to faith. Certainly, later when Paul says that all Israel will be saved, this number indicates both natural Jews and Gentiles through faith. But for now, notice the word all there. I would make the case that all doesn't mean every single one. That would be some form of universalism. But it means that everyone God has chosen, every one of God's will be saved, and God will take as long as God wants to accomplish that purpose. But having said that, notice the clear intention of the text. Paul is bringing up Elijah in the remnant of 7,000, and that is clearly saying that it is more coming to faith than you think there is. God is continually adding to that number all of the time. In times when it seems like God is being rejected, and these people are continually rejecting him, the fact is, they're not all lost. I think of China, if one looks at that country from the outside, all the the crackdowns on religion and in faith, one would think that it would be so difficult to be a believer there that there's not many believers there at all. We would think that the, the number of Christians there has to be decreasing, if anything. But we know that isn't the case. We know that the number of Christians is, is growing in spite of the opposition. But we could also see how a believer in, in that part of the world would become discouraged and could possibly believe that they were the only one because they didn't know about any others. Or they could think that the rest of the world was like they were and they could get discouraged. In the book, Insanity of God, Nick Ricken tells of an experience he had in, in China meeting with pastors from underground churches and how they were shocked to learn that there were other Christians in other parts of the world that worshipped freely. and no idea. And this leads us to the first implication of our text. And that is that there is always a remnant, and that remnant is much larger than we might think it is. We thought about China or a place like that, but think about those who are working in other hard places, like an inner city mission, or at your workplace, perhaps. 
There are always places that are full of people who are particularly resistant to the gospel. And what we learn here is that even in the most difficult of circumstances, God is still at work saving his people. I think the tendency for us or other Christians in difficult places, China or our workplace, is just to keep quiet. See how bad things are. To see the potential consequences of being a voice that proclaims the gospel, how that's not appealing. And we fall into the trap of thinking that these people are are too hard, too hostile to the gospel anyway. So the best thing for me to do is just to keep my head down and live to fight another day. But my friends, we know that the Christian faith is spreading in China. It's spreading in other places precisely because people do not have this attitude. Appealing to Romans 10 and verses 14 and 15 again. But people are not going to respond to the gospel. They're not going to come to faith if somebody doesn't tell them. Even in the most difficult of situations, God is still saving a remnant. A people for his own possession. And that number is more than we think. John Calvin says it this way. He says, Let this truth remain fixed in our hearts. That the church, which may not appear as anything to our sight, is nourished by the secret providence of God. For God has a way accessible to himself, but concealed from us, by which he wonderfully preserves his elect, even when all seems lost. A second implication comes from that phrase quoted from 1 Kings 19, that all, not all have bowed to the Baals. We said this at the start, that Baal worship was incredibly corrupt. It was a, a horrible religion that existed into the time of Elijah because The Jews didn't exterminate these people from the promised land under the conquest that was led by Joshua. The worship of of Baal was basically sex worship coupled with materialism. The practice of this sacred prostitution was supposed to to guarantee the reincurrence of the seasons. So the crops would be planted and harvested and and people would prosper. Of course, this might not look exactly the same today. But we have the, the same thing with our blatant sexual promiscuity, with the radical materialism that we face. Make no mistake, that religion was popular because of the debased sexuality that was involved in it. I mean, in our world, we're faced with this deviation at every turn. These things are being normalized in our world. My point is that it might seem like all hope is lost. Everything is around us is continually getting worse and worse. And we might be tempted to be pessimistic, to look at the world around us and say, the world around us is in perpetual decline. There are hard, there's hardly anyone left 
And there's just going to be fewer and fewer people that don't bow down to the Baals. And our temptation in that moment is to, to give up, and perhaps some of us have already done that. Perhaps you haven't advertised it, or maybe you haven't even thought about it in those terms. But for all practical purpose, you've said, what's the, what's the point? Things are just going to get worse and worse. What's, what's the point? And you quit. Quit sharing the gospel. You quit starting relationships with coworkers and neighbors for the purpose of sharing the gospel because you believe in, in your heart. There, there's, so there's no point. The fact is, there is. And that's Paul's point here in bringing this situation up from 1 Kings 19. Elijah needed to hear that he was not alone, that there were 7,000 that have not bowed down to these other gods. And perhaps you need to be reminded of the opening words of the book. That the gospel is the power of God for all who believe. For the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. That's Romans chapter 1.17. When things look bleak, and things look bad, like they're only going to get worse, we must be reminded that the gospel is more powerful than any other force. Because God's power is more powerful than anything that could have come against it. And the gospel is still powerful. And it's still being displayed today. Make no mistake, people are coming to faith because there are Christians that have not given up. That believe in the power of the gospel. They believe that the world around us is, is evil and corrupt, but the solution isn't to back off. It's to persist. In, in the chapter before this, Paul quotes from Isaiah, and he says, how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. When I read that, I think of a, a fictional news story, fake news, about a small village somewhere. People are, are dying. And there's the, a man that, that hikes in for, for days with a backpack full of pills, and he starts handing out the pills to everybody, and Pretty soon, people aren't sick anymore. They stop dying. The man would be a hero. There would be cameras everywhere vying for the story of this man. And it is absolutely right. He would be a hero. But how much more beautiful are those feet that bring the good news to somebody whose eternity is destined to be apart from God for all eternity? Eternal punishment. Eternal death. Jesus said that we shouldn't fear the one that can kill the body, but we should fear the one who can destroy the body and soul in hell. The gospel is the, the power of God, and God is more powerful than anything that we know. And we know that even in the worst of times, he's saving a remnant. More than, than we think, so there's every incentive not to sit back on the sidelines, to not give up, but to persist Perhaps, though, that you've bought into that lie, like Elijah and so many other really good people. We're the only ones left. And essentially, you're giving up and you're running away and you're hiding in a cave. You're not persisting in the gospel mission. 
When we hear this message today that God is still saving people, that we must turn from the sin of complacency. We must recognize that, that Jesus here was, was perfect for us, that, that even though we've fallen short, Christ died for us and, and saved us in order that we might be a blessing to others. My friend, we look back at our own salvation all the time. We look back at what God saved us from. We look at the sins that we commit daily that damn us, that should damn us. That the, that the thoughts that we have, the sins that we commit, they're treasonous acts against an all-holy God who has this perfect, righteous standard for us. And we continually blow that off and we continually say, I know what the best course of action should be here. But we realize that in the gospel, it isn't that we could do what God demands. It's that we look to somebody who has done it for us. Who has kept every command perfectly. Who has loved other people perfectly. Who has pointed them to God in the sufficiency of, of God. Where we've fallen short and where we've given up. He has done that on our behalf so that we would not bear the, the consequences of that. Because that is a sin, complacency. We look back at what God has saved us from. That He's taken us from, from death. Somebody that deserved the, the wrath of God and given us new life in Christ. Who has died so that, that we might live in victoriously. The song is saying this morning is so apt, so perfect. There is victory in Jesus. And we continually look back at what he's done for us and we press forward then in gratitude. And we long to be obedient because we love him. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.